Psalm 105 is a wonderful psalm. It's the story of at least that portion that was read, a man named Joseph. Old Testament story, book of Genesis. Joseph was one of twelve sons of Jacob, sold into slavery by his brothers for twenty pieces of silver. He was enslaved for a period of time, then he was released and became a ruler over the people. And as such, Joseph serves us as a type, a picture, a shadow of what we see in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that Psalm 105 that you heard this morning, that reading, talking about Joseph's betrayal by his brothers, the selling of Joseph into slavery, and the setting free to become king or a prince, is so, so very close to what we'll be looking at in our story today that we open in our study of Matthew's Gospel. We're in chapter 27, and we'll begin with verse 1 of chapter 27. Now, we're also going to be looking at the other Gospels as well a little later on, so there'll be probably more Scripture reading today than I typically would do, but I want to make sure that we get a really well-rounded understanding of you of what has been going on in these last days of Jesus' life on the earth. Last time we saw that he had been before a group of enemies late at night who wanted to put him to death. And so they brought him before Annas originally, according to John's Gospel, and then to Caiaphas, both of whom were considered to be high priests, Annas, the high priest according to the Jews, Caiaphas, the high priest according to the Roman government, but they were both religious leaders, and it's at Caiaphas's illegal meeting late at night where he and those co- cohorts with him decided that Jesus was deserving of death because they finally found two false witnesses that could agree on something, and they used that as a basis upon which the high priest would ask this question, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said, You have said it. And in that affirmation that Jesus just gave to the high priest, the high priest tore his robe and said, See, what more do we need of witnesses? You've heard it from his own lips. What do you say? And they all said, in this illegal setting, He is deserving of death. So there have been two basic trials that Jesus now has come before these enemies of his. First again, at Annas' house. We're not told much about that particular experience, but there was an initial confrontation by Annas, the high priest, and then by Caiaphas, in which that which I just described has taken place. Now in chapter 27, we're going to be looking at another series of events. And Matthew doesn't give it all, the detail, that some of the other gospel readings will give us. So that's why when we get to that point, we're going to be looking at the other gospel records because there are more than just one trial involved. We've already looked at two of them. When we come to this portion that we're going to be looking at today, there'll be four additional events that are separate events recorded in all of the scriptures. But they all are for the purpose of trying Jesus. Even though he is innocent... They find him guilty. The scripture that we had displayed is a scripture that I want you to 
keep in mind as we move forward in our study today. It's found in verse 22 of chapter 27. And let me just read it for you since it's no longer before you. But it says this, Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. They had made a determination. He needed to die. That decision had been made long before this particular hour. But it's at this time that they finally got what they were looking for. But the means by which they did so is corrupt, evil. Yet God allowed it. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it was before the foundations of the world that these things were determined. None of these things will have been done unless God had allowed it and intended for it to be so. Remember the last time we were together, we repeated the statement that Jesus made, these things must be fulfilled. And that is exactly what is happening here as the story continues to unfold for us. Verse 1, chapter 27 says this. Before we get into the trial, we're going to see the results of one individual who thought that he was doing the right thing. And I'm not talking about Peter. We're going back to the last word about the man named Judas Iscariot. Verse 1 of chapter 27 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Now that's one of the trials that we're going to be talking about a little bit later on, but that's all that Matthew says about that. And then he goes on to talk about Judas. It says, And when they had bound him, Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought them, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. There's a lot of information here that we want to not gloss over, but I do want to make sure that we're aware of the fact that Judas is said to here be remorseful. That does not mean he repented. Now, in some of your translations, if you've got the King James, for instance, it uses the word repentant, but it is not the same Greek word metanoia that is used for our term that we use for repentance for salvation. It is better translated remorseful. He thought wrongly of himself for having done that. It's like the prisoner who says when he's incarcerated, ask the question, are you sorry that you got caught? And the prisoner can have a response with two different meanings behind the response. The prisoner can say, oh yes, I'm sorry. But he's not sorry that he did the thing that was wrong. He's sorry that he got caught. That's remorse. 
The other would be, I'm sorry that I did this thing. I shouldn't have done it. I repented of that. True repentance is completely different than remorsefulness. And so it is with Judas and Peter. Peter repented. He came back. He believed that his Lord was indeed the Christ. He was terribly saddened by the fact that he denied the Lord. But he wept over that denial and he was crying out to his God for forgiveness. Judas, on the other hand, was remorseful. He was sad, basically, that he got caught. It was the wrong decision that he made. He realized that. And this is the reason that Judas realizes and becomes remorseful over that realization. He says here that he came to the right conclusion about the innocence of Jesus, but that made no difference to his attempt to see that Jesus was indeed brought before the people who would ultimately take his life. Now, there are a lot of people who would bring to our attention the mindset of Judas. Oh, you have to have pity on this poor man. He was confused. He didn't know what he was doing. Well, I submit to you that he most certainly did. Jesus himself called Judas the devil. John said he was a thief from the beginning. He held the money back and took from it on a regular basis. We're told in more than one place that the devil, Satan, entered into Judas. Make no mistake, he was appointed to this particular event that took place. How do you justify that? Well, God's Word says it. And so we must accept the fact that it was God's purpose that one should do what Judas did. He had to do what he did. Now, I'm also convinced that if Judas had come to the Lord and said, I'm so sorry I've done what I've done, please forgive me, that forgiveness would have been given to him. But that wasn't in his mind. He went through with what he had done. He took the 30 pieces of silver that they gave him. And as he stood there realizing that he was finally getting some value out of his time with Jesus, he finds out that Jesus now has been condemned by the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the Sadducees. And, and he's now thinking, wow, that wasn't worth the effort. 30 pieces of silver for this. And he realized they condemned him to death. He realized Jesus was truly an innocent man. And he says so. Take a look again what he says. He throws the pieces of silver down in the temple after he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's admitting the innocence of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand. Make sure you understand. Make sure that you're well aware of what is going on here. Judas, in spite of the fact that he recognized the innocence of Jesus, made no effort to set him free, made no effort to counter the accusations that had been brought against his Lord. He threw the pieces of silver in the temple and he went out and hanged himself. It's kind of a gruesome story that's not given much detail here, but in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that he fell and basically impaled himself in his innards went out onto the ground. It's kind of a messy story, but it's his end. He committed suicide. He ended his life. Jesus had said, better 
if that man had never been born. And the response of those that he brought this silver back to in the sanctuary of the temple, by the way, not just the temple courts, but he went into the holy place where only the priests could go. And he confronted them, and they said, hey, what's that to us? That's your problem. And it was his problem. He threw the money down there in the temple precinct and ran and committed suicide. Now, the actions of the priests were just as evil. They took the money, and they said, you know what? This is blood money. We can't use this in the sanctuary. We can't do this evil thing. They were concerned about the impact against the Mosaic law of taking that money, which was stained with blood, and yet they were about to kill the Messiah. They had no problem with murder, apparently, but with taking money that had somebody's blood associated with it, that was a real problem for them. You see how crooked they were, how terribly, terribly wrong they were in every detail. So they ended up buying a field. They called it the potter's field. Book of Acts tells us that it's named Caseldema, the field of blood. That's the Aramaic for that particular field that was bought by them. And it is in fulfillment of what Matthew says is Jeremiah's prophecy. Now that can be considered to be one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to deal with with regard to the inerrancy of the Word of God. Why? Because it wasn't Jeremiah who spoke those words. It was Zechariah. Chapter 11 of the book of Zechariah gives that prophecy that Matthew quotes here. So why did Matthew say it was Jeremiah? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that it could be a copious error. The original writing of Matthew might have said Zechariah, and then early copies began to be distributed where the copyist wrote Jeremiah by mistake. And it was then copied from that point on. That's a real possibility, and many people believe that as being the case. The other explanation is probably a little bit more vague, but it's also a possibility. The Jews in Jesus' day had scrolls, and some of the scrolls were more than one prophet speaking written into the single scroll. The scroll where Zechariah was found is a scroll of Jeremiah. And so Matthew is referring to the scroll title, which was because Jeremiah was the chief prophet of those writings in that one scroll, that Jeremiah rightfully then can say that it was Jeremiah because it was Jeremiah's scroll from which that prophecy was given. So that's an important and likely possibility as well. The fact that, as I pointed out, Joseph in the Old Testament sold into slavery and that he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, very much like what Jesus was also sold for as a slave, in a sense. In the Old Testament law, the writings of Moses, we see the mention of a situation where if a neighbor's bull slaughters a man's servant. It's the responsibility of the owner of the bull to pay for the damages. 
And the payment that was required was 30 pieces of silver. So it's important when you realize that 30 pieces of silver was the price of a common slave in that day that adds weight to this 30 pieces of silver that are associated with the accusations that stand against our Lord. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Nothing more than a common slave. Joseph was sold as nothing more than a common slave. But he's released and he became a great prince. And that's why the type is so beautiful. Because he did suffer greatly at the hands of his own family. Just as Jesus suffered greatly at the hands of his own people. But he was brought out of that into great prosperity and victory, as will Jesus also. So keep in mind what that type, that picture has drawn for us as we continue on. Verse 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. The governor... Pontius Pilate, he was a prefect, a very, very special appointment that king of Rome, the Caesar at the time, Tiberius, gave to him. He was there for a short period of time during the time of perhaps around 26 A.D. till 36 A.D. over the territory of Judea. Now, Judea was considered to be an imperial territory. And that meant that they were rebellious. And it was required of Rome because of their rebellion to enforce their laws in that territory with a large number of soldiers and representatives, ambassadors. In this case, Pilate was one of them as an ambassador of Caesar, a prefect, a governor of the region. Other territories were more friendly toward Rome, and they were known as um, some other name. I've forgotten that name. You can look it up. But they were considered by Rome to be friendly, and they didn't need to provide such strength with arms in those territories. Judas was, or Judah rather, the territory of Judah was a territory that caused them a great deal of grief. And when Pilate first came there, he had to come with a great deal of authority to put down the response of the Jews to his arrival. Josephus, first century writer, tells us a little bit of the detail about his first arrival, talking about the fact that when he came with great fanfare and banners that he put in the temple area, the Jews didn't like that at all, and they caused a great deal of trouble for Pilate. He was able finally to settle things down somewhat, but there was never, ever any amount of what you would call peace in that region. There were always pockets of rebellion, and he had to deal with that on a regular basis. He hated being there. In fact, instead of staying in Jerusalem, the capital, he ended up getting his palace established in a north coastal town called Caesarea. 
But it's a feast time. And Pilate is now in Jerusalem because of the fact that so many Jews are in the city. He's got to come back and manage some degree of control over the city with the forces that he's got. They had a group of elite soldiers called the Praetorian Guard stationed in Jerusalem, just outside the temple. And they were able to keep things fairly quiet. And then all of a sudden, these chief rulers of the people come and they make an announcement outside of his residence in Jerusalem. We need to talk to you, Pilate. They wouldn't go inside because that would defile them. So they made it so that Pilate had to come out to them. And so he did so, probably resenting the fact that he had to come out to them instead of them coming into him. He went out to find out what was the matter. And he finds out that this man that they've got bound is a man who needs to be punished by death. So he agrees to consider this particular case. Now that's where we need to divert from Matthew's account and turn to a few other places. I'd like first of all for us to turn to Luke's Gospel. Because before Pilate makes a decision, he seeks to know some information. And Luke gives us some detail about that which Pilate sought on this first encounter early in the morning. Chapter 23 of Luke's Gospel, beginning with verse 1. Luke 23 Verse 1 says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. He never did that. In fact, he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and what is God's to God. And also saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus had made them aware of the fact that he is indeed the king of the Jews. Verse 3 says, Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. Think about this. They had punched him. They had torn out his beard. He was bleeding. He was bruised. He was beaten by them. And they bring him in the state bound, and they're saying, this is our king. And that must have been somewhat confusing to Pilate to see this beaten man, almost beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable, and he's your king? Consider the fact that Pilate's mind must have been reeling with questions. What is wrong with this people? King? Caesar's the king. Maybe I do have to do something about this. So he asked Jesus point blank, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus acknowledged in the affirmative, It's as you say. And verse 4 says, So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Innocent. Remember, Jesus was proven innocent by Judas, his betrayer. And now Pilate, in his first 
observations of what has gone on already in this early morning false accusations against this one individual. And he says, hey, you guys, he can't be guilty of what you say. I find no fault in him. He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. That's why when Pilate asked the question back in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, verse 22, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And that question is a question that stands out in my mind as one that needs to be answered by every one of us. What shall I do with this one called Jesus the Christ? What shall you do with this one who was called Jesus the Christ? It is a valid question for everyone to ask. A personal question. A question that needs a heartfelt response. And there are so many people that need to ask that question who have not yet asked that question, but they do definitely need to ask. Again, Peter denied him, but he still loved him. Judas betrayed him, but he would not repent. Pilate is here pondering the things that are now presented to him, wondering what is this all about. He's going to get some more information from Jesus, but I wonder, did it actually make a difference in his life? We're not told, by the way. There's a lot of extra-biblical accounts of what took place in Pilate's mind and heart after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ? Did he come to a knowledge of a Savior? Did his wife? We're not told. I'd love to be able to say, yeah, he's there. You will see him. Maybe. But he has an opportunity to answer the question that he asks. What shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Going back to Luke's Gospel to finish what we started to read there in verse 4 now of chapter 23. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem at that time. I've got a means by which I can get out of this mess. Take him to Herod. He's in Herod's jurisdiction. He's Herod's responsibility. Let Herod judge this man instead of me. He didn't want to be involved in this mess. You can see it from the very beginning of the confrontation that he's got to deal with this group of madmen. And he doesn't want to. He wants a way out. He wants a means of escape. And he thinks he's got it. Send him to Herod. Well, so they did. Now, the fourth trial. Herod. Wait, do I have that right? Annas. Caiaphas, the council. Oh, the council was the third trial. They met, they met with 
before they went to Pilate, they met with one another in the council chamber, which is where they should have been at the beginning, and they all agreed, according to the other records, which I won't bother reading, that he is, he is indeed deserving of death. That's when they came after that to Pilate as the fourth event. Now the fifth event, he's standing before Herod. And it says in verse 8 of Luke's Gospel in chapter 23, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard so many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle by him. It was a plaything as far as Herod was concerned. Oh, the miracle worker's here. Send him in. I want to see what he can do in front of me. I've heard a lot of good things about this man, how he has done so many miracles among the people. I want to see some of that miracle-working power. That's not going to save him. And it won't save anybody either, anytime. Miracles do not give cause for salvation. Repentance does. Herod would not repent. Remember, he's the one that cut off John the Baptist's head. In spite of having heard the gospel from John's lips, he would not believe. He would not believe even though he had seen miracles performed by Jesus. He just wanted to see the wonder of it. There are a lot of people who fall into the trap of following after miracle-working power manifest even in the world today. There are many who go around promoting miracles instead of salvation. Stand away from such things, people. Verse 9 just continues to say, Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus wouldn't give him the light of day. He answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And from that day on, Pilate and Herod were good buddies. They had been at enmity, we're told, against one another until then. Now they're friends. My enemy is my friend when we both come against our common enemy. That's still true today, by the way. Turn with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 18. Verse 28 of John's Gospel, chapter 18, says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they might, that they might eat the Passover. Look how religious these men are. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him unto you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So now Pilate knows what they're after. They're after the death penalty. And they can't put him to death because Rome won't allow it. So they have to come to Pilate. Now he knows why they're there. Now he knows there's more trouble than he's wanting to have to deal with. 
He says in verse 32, Then the saying of Jesus will be fulfilled by this. And that saying of Jesus that might be fulfilled is this, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. You see, Jesus said he would be crucified. The method of death by the Jewish law was stoning. So he had to be brought before Pilate in order to be crucified as he had said. Thus, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Verse 33 says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, yes, I am a king, as you have said, but my kingdom isn't from here. That must have sent shivers down Pilate's spine. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And then Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Philosophy of the day. They couldn't really define truth. Frankly, there's very few in this present age that can truly define truth. After all, when you have fuzzy math that says 2 plus 2 is not 4, you've got a problem. When you try to convince people that everything that we have learned, scientifically proven, is not really necessarily truth. It's always a generality. It's always relational. It's always, well, it could be, but it might not be true. And in some circumstances, it's okay to be in a gray area like this, but as far as the Bible is concerned, there is no gray. It's black or it's white. It's right or it's wrong. It's true or it's false. Absolute truth is what the Bible teaches. And Jesus Christ, His Word, because He is the Word of God, is indeed the truth of God. There is no mistake. When Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, He meant that. There is no exception. None. He stands before Pilate and Pilate asks, What is truth? Jesus didn't respond. It tells us in verse 38, after Peter, uh, Pilate asked that question, and when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. A second time, no fault in this man. He's innocent. You are trying to prove this man is guilty of some trumped up charge and he's not. I can see through all of what you're doing. This is a setup. He's innocent. Pilate was adamant. I find no fault in this man. Nor should any of us. I find no fault in this man. 
back in Matthew's Gospel. Pilate is looking for a way out still. He's been thinking about all that's happened so far. He says, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. I don't want to do this. There's got to be a way out. He comes upon a plan. Matthew records it for us, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 27, where he says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over before because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, Having nothing or have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Good for her. She comes boldly to Pilate in the praetorium where he's receiving counsel from all of those who were with him and then counsel from his own wife, which he ought to listen to, have nothing to do with this just man. She saw him as innocent, had a dream, whether it's from God or not. She had a dream, and there's something that caused her to realize they're trying to get this man killed and he's not worthy of death. Have nothing to do with this, my husband. Husbands, listen to your wives. Sometimes they make good sense. (laughs) Most of the time, I have to confess. No, all of the time, I must confess. Pilate did not. But he wanted to. He just didn't know how. To save face. He was torn between two things. An insurrectionist causing so much trouble in Jerusalem, which was already a troubled area for Rome. Oh, that wouldn't settle well with the new Caesar because Tiberius had died. Now the new Caesar Caesar was not much in favor of Pilate. He found a great deal of problems with Pilate's administration. And any little thing could conceivably bring him to the place where he would remove Pilate from his position. That ultimately did happen just a few short years after this. But the chief priests, verse 20, and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I want you to pay attention to the name Barabbas. In the Hebrew language, Bar, the first three letters of this name, is translated son. Bar Jonas, son of Jonas. Bar Jesus, the son of Jesus. Bar Abba, son of the father. Barabbas, son of a father. We're finding here that the son of the father is going to substitute his own life for the sake of saving a son of a father. You get the picture? There's an exchange here, the swapping out. The son of the father is going to be substituting his own life, 
sacrificing himself on behalf of another one who is already determined to be an insurrectionist, a murderer, one who is to, to take that place on the cross that Jesus ultimately would be taking. And he's now been released from that terrible condemnation, set free from that sinful act that he has been done, released, acquitted, no longer an enemy of Rome. Because an innocent man has taken his place. Son of a father. That's like you and me. We're all sons of fathers. But he, Jesus, is the son of the father. Psalms 2 and others quote the fact that he is indeed the son of God. This is my beloved son. God had said, and many had heard, hear him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. You are my Son, he says in Psalm 2. This day I have begotten you. Make no question in your mind about the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, beloved of God, the only begotten Son of God. He is the Word of God. He came and He died for you and for me. And he's here facing this charge of wicked men against him who want nothing less than the penalty of death. And they won't stop until they get it. And so in the effort that Pilate makes to put Barabbas and Jesus before the people, thinking surely they're going to choose Barabbas and not this poor man whom they've already beaten to a pulp, who is innocent as innocent can be, surely the crowd will see the difference between these two men. Well, they did. They saw a great difference between the two men. They saw themselves in Barabbas, and they saw the one that would come to the place of death for them and for you. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas! And Pilate said in verse 22, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What shall you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Answer the question. What shall you do? What shall I do? What shall our neighbors do? What shall our co-workers do? What shall our relatives do? with Jesus, who was called Christ. And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. You and I said the same thing. Our actions proved our desire to see him put on the cross in Barabbas' place, in my place, and in yours. Then the governor said in verse 23, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, that's the second issue, he was very much aware of the fact that Caesar wouldn't like what's going on if there's an insurrection, so he's got to calm them down. But he's also got to show them the favor that they're seeking because he doesn't want them to be angry at him either. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't know where to go. He thought he had a way out. But they're choosing to disregard his only way out. 
because they want something accomplished and they will get it. And by the way, the final straw is recorded in another gospel. When he began to balk at their request, they said, You're no friend of Caesar. If you don't put this man to death, you're an enemy of Caesar. That settled it for him. But here in Matthew's Gospel, we're told in verse 24, when Pilate saw they could not prevail, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children, and so it has been. They were self-condemning by these words that came from their lips. His blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, be on us and on our children. And you look through their history, and even up to the day today, they are still suffering for that decision. There is, however, coming a time when they will be indeed given that final opportunity. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them will be, a remnant will be saved. Because of God's grace and mercy, that will be so. But their response, His blood, be on us and our children, was the final word. And Pilate agreed. Then he released Barabbas. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We'll go no further than that today. It's certainly worth our while to spend some time considering what we've just read about. Considering the consequences of the decisions that were made by those people who were part of the story. The decision that Peter made to deny Jesus Christ, his Lord. And how he wept bitterly over that decision. And we're told later that he did indeed become a great leader in the church. Not without faults. Not perfect. Just forgiven. Just like you and me. We know that Judas did not repent. He ended his life in a sad story. But it needed to be done because it was according to God's plan and all Scripture needed to be fulfilled. The chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, there's a very likely possibility that the Apostle Paul, known then as Saul of Tarsus, was one of those in the Sanhedrin that day who considered all that was presented and was among those who said, he's worthy of death. But by the grace of God, Saul of Tarsus became the great Paul the Apostle. We're told after the resurrection that many of the priests, the Levites, many of those who were part of that crowd that said, crucify him, became believers according to the Word of God. But there was still opposition even after the resurrection. They wanted to cover the story. You know that well. They did not want to admit their error. They brought it to the grave. And just like Judas, their destiny was sealed. We don't know about Pilate, about Pilate's wife. We don't know about Barabbas. 
I wondered, was Barabbas standing in the crowd when Jesus was hanging on the cross and hearing the words that Jesus spoke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Did they hear him say, it is finished? Did Barabbas witness the empty tomb that everybody in Jerusalem was talking about? What happened to him? Did he continue to work in the position that he had before? A robber? A killer of men? Or did he change? I don't know. God knows. What's more important is, what about us? What about our families? What about our co-workers, our neighbors? What about people we just simply know that, oh, we'd love to see them come to church, but we don't know if they ever will. It's time for us to really give some serious thought about our involvement in these last days. So I would like to ask each and every one of us to commit a time daily to pray for the people around us. People far and wide, they all need Jesus. Is it not yet time for us to act? Is it not yet time for us to raise our voice to our God and say, please God, draw them to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit? I want us to remind God, it is time for you to act, O Lord, for they regard your law as void. I want us to pray to the Lord that the people everywhere would lift holy hands and worship Him in spirit and in truth. I want our prayer to be, let God arise and let His enemies be scattered. I want our prayer to be, Father, not my will, but Thine be done. I want us to commit to daily prayer on behalf of those who are not yet saved and for prayer for those who are saved that we would be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God in these last hours. Oh, God, help us if we choose not to do so. Because we're no better off than those that we read about today who said, crucify Him. Crucify Him. We once stood in that place. May it not be so now. In Jesus' name.